0: Hi everyone, I'm your host Aviva Rumani, and welcome to the tenth episode of Kindred Cast, Liontree's biweekly podcast featuring insights and stories from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we're pleased to present a conversation with Liontree CEO Arye Borkov and former NBA commissioner, tech investor, and advisor David Stern. Their conversation covered everything from David's 30-plus-year history with the league to his thoughts on today's teams, esports, and his most impactful decisions. Here we go. Now we have Austin with our latest Kincast quiz question.
1: What is the most watched single sporting event in television history globally? A the 2014 FIFA World Cup final match between Germany and Argentina, B, Super Bowl 51 between the New England Patriots and Atlanta Falcons, C, the 2015 Cricket World Cup group match between India and Pakistan, or D, the 2016 Summer Olympic opening ceremony in Rio.
0: In his 30-year tenure as the NBA's commissioner, David Stern presided over the evolution of the league into the multi-billion dollar juggernaut that it is today, led by his tenacity and, of course, love for the game. He oversaw the NBA's extraordinary growth with seven new franchises, a more than 30-fold increase in revenues, a dramatic expansion of global television exposure, and, of course, the launch of two leagues, the WNBA and the NBA Development League. He also negotiated the first anti-drug agreement in professional sports and introduced the salary cap system and revenue sharing. Hardly slowing down post his MBA career, he's an investor in and advisor to a variety of startups. Enjoy the conversation.
2: David, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. I appreciate your being here at Lyon Tree's offices. It's the place to be. <laughs> I have a trivia question to start. Okay. Let's see if you can get it right. What do Hakeem Olajuwon, Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, and John Stockton, and David Stern all have in common? I can't even imagine. Were they born in September? Well, you both
3: are very athletic. Yeah, I All understand. of you guys. I, I actually, I dunk like Hakeem, I pass like Stockton, I rebound like Barkley. Who's the fourth one?
2: Michael Jordan, you've heard oh, of him? Oh, yeah, I can. You know, and I uh, have global appeal like Michael. You all joined the league the same year. I, I knew that. <laughs> I was cheating. <laughs> 1984.
3: That's pretty, that's pretty good.
2: Like that's a, yes, a good association. A good association. So you came in in February 1984 and became commissioner of the NBA, succeeding Larry O'Brien. Right. Did you have a grand plan when you succeeded Larry and became commissioner? No, nothing. The grand plan consisted of trying to get through the day and to make things incrementally better every time we had a chance. And you did that and much more. So I want to talk about a few major topics that's going to bring us back to today and hopefully into the future. But The first topic is something that a lot of people involved in sports I think often kind of brush to the side or think about as something that's secondary to the core uh, passion and business at hand, and that's labor. Labor really refers to the relationship between people and their employees, the commissioners and their players, the league and their teams, etc. And a lot of people view that as a point of friction. But creating harmony between team owners, players, and the commissioner can be magical. And no one was better at it than you. Because you came into a lot of issues around labor. That was your background as a lawyer. And you created harmony and you created problem solving. And then obviously the league went on to create really a renaissance period as a result of it.
3: Well, you know most people of recent vintage will focus on the fact that towards the end of my tenure there was friction in that relationship because we had lockouts and harsh negotiations i would say that was a lot of that was as a relation to the leadership of the union but i was left with the task of representing the league during a lockout but the reality is that we were for a long time looking For the perfect alignment, if you would, as with respect to profitability, revenue sharing, etc., and what emerged was a system for which actually i could be criticized, but of which I'm quite proud, was unique almost to American labor relations, and that is, by comparison, if you're a car company, you set your wages in a collective bargaining agreement, and anything that you do in way of growth goes for the benefit of the shareholders. But the essential arrangement between the NBA and its players, the NHL and its players, and the NFL and its players, all have to do with the players getting a percentage of the gross. People don't quite understand that getting a percentage of the gross is a really good place to be because you have no costs associated with that. And so for every dollar that comes in in the NBA the players are guaranteed 50% in salaries and benefits. The owners, on the other hand, use the other 50% to pay all the expenses attendant to the creation of the revenue and perhaps left, if they're lucky, with maybe they get something between a nickel and a dime. I'm not sure. And so that's a pretty good system, but there were harsh negotiations over the split, and so we've had a couple of lockouts, but it's been pretty good. I also... Remember, going back to the 80s, because I was the executive vice president before I was the commissioner, renegotiated the first employee assistance program in 1983, which really dealt with the issue of drugs. We developed an anti-drug program with punishment, education, compassion, etc., And that was the NBA and its players doing that. And that was really appreciated. And I would say, not focused on much, it began the growth of the league in a good way because people were appreciative of the fact that we had sat down and worked this out. Little did we know or did they understand that in the future, drugs would become the center of our society, whether it was in schools, prisons, hospitals, every profession, and ultimately the unsuccessful war on drugs. And so that was a real big lift. And that, I feel, came out of our emerging relationship with our players, which enabled us to work together. And at the end of the day, we did work together.
2: Yeah, because I think it's an overlooked or underappreciated dynamic that you created a safety net for viewers, for families, for popular culture to really embrace the sport, and you created as best as you could alignment between the owners and the players, which really tried to drive a lot of value.
3: Right. The truth is that, as I think the current leadership of the union understands, that as they participate with the league in growing their revenues, the lion's share of those are going to the players. And so we have a real community of interest
2: to grow the sport. Yeah. And how important was that to create what was the brand power, the star power of the league, both in the U.S. and internationally.
3: Well, when I became commissioner, I thought I was, you know, in charge of events, that I was overseeing 20-some-odd theme parks with licensing arrangements and television arrangements and commercial uniforms and things like that. Based upon reading and other things, realized I was what was probably a brand manager, which was sort of phase two. And then... I think it became clear to me that the role had evolved into one where we were, how shall I say it, curators of enormously valuable content. And if truth be told, all three were really what we were. And as each one improved, our business skyrocketed. So the buildings that were our theme parks went from being old war memorial arenas to these entertainment palaces with restaurants and suites and video boards and dancing girls and occasionally a a basketball game would break out. Our revenue swelled as a result of the price increases that came and the club seats and the parking and all the other accoutrements of the good life at an arena that housed an NBA, in many cases an NHL team. And then somehow along the way, I guess it got most important when NBC took us over as a TV it was leading the ratings and the like and must see TV etc with enormous promotional value laid against the NBA and our games began to get more viewed and there was this guy named Michael Jordan who together with Larry and Magic and those other and Charles and Stockton and Malone and everybody else began to gather in the audiences
2: Those are the brands you're talking about. Those are the
3: brands. And then all of a sudden, uh, if you are a student of television history, and I'm a little bit of one, there was a time when I think Grant Tinker of, uh, I guess NBC famously said, there's only enough content for two and a half networks. Uh, And then we moved into the 500 network uh, environment of Mm -hmm. John Malone. Mm -hmm. And we went from... Network over the air, to cable, and I did the first cable deal for the NBA with USA Network. I never thought this thing called entertainment and sports programming network had a future. Um, AKA, ESPN. ESPN, and then satellite. We made one of the early deals with Direct TV, so our games were on satellite TV. And then came digital television. And then came this thing called the internet and then came this wonderful add-on called social media and we were always early to the dance with respect to each of these advancements just because we had a curious bunch of people we were willing to fail and we just you know pushed each other to take advantage of any new opportunity
2: <laughs> is that what you attribute it to the curiosity and the risk taking because you definitely had your finger on the pulse of the media expansion, the NBA care, social media, all the beginnings of these things that happened during your reign.
3: We were always pushing. We were always pushing each other. And when we finished one thing, we said, well, what are we going to do that's new and different? So we were happy to try that. What we did along the way have our pulse on was the fact that sports presented something different. It wasn't just the live entertainment that was uniting the world and getting everyone to tune in to the colossal moment of the World Cup or the Olympics. But it was the, I used to say, it's the way you engage the world in a single conversation. Maybe it's especially because of Magic Johnson announcing that it was HIV positive in 1991, and it was on the cover of every newspaper in the world, not just the United States. And it changed the debate on AIDS in this country and around the world because a beloved face suddenly became the face of HIV positive. And, you know, that has influenced us with respect to NBA cares and things like that. We realize that talking about sports, in addition to the ability to gather up a crowd and be interested in personalities and talk about the lifestyles of the rich and famous through the lens of sports, you talk about discipline, hard work, teamwork, sacrifice, and a sense of accomplishment that comes from participating and succeeding at a sport. It's not just this illusory notionality of it. If you go look under the hood of some of the most important corporations, you see that even, let's say, with respect to the WNBA and women's of strength there, that those women who have succeeded in a difficult environment in American business probably had some sports in their background for the most part because they've dealt with competition. They've dealt with dealing with uh, discipline and hard work and diversity and the like. You could call it a romantic notion
2: and we fully embrace that. It has all the elements has all of the elements. Well, there's no doubt that when you were overseeing the NBA was the most innovative period for sports, I think. When you were first negotiating with the USA Network or ESPN or NBC, I'm sure it was a easy negotiation at that time, whereas today it's much more difficult. Much no, more actually,
3: it was hard. I was dealing with Kay Koplovitz, who was the founder and CEO of USA Network, and we were practically wrestling each other to the ground because... She agreed to pay us the munificent amount of four hundred thousand dollars for the cable rights. Per year. Per year. With a penny a sub per subscriber. We got I got an extra eighty thousand dollars the first year. There were four million subs to start the year. So that was pretty cool. And then we just sort of rode the rise. What so, would that
2: be equivalent uh, today if you were doing the same negotiation? Well,
3: I will tell you that in 1979, I think the NBA got $22,400,000 for its team. It was actually a million dollars a team, more or less, a million one. 000, 000. Now each team gets an average under the last deal made in 2014 of uh, $84 million. So it was a good run. <laughs> <laughs> and it was reflective of the renewed valuation of sports rights that people realized that if you want to aggregate an audience, you start with the Super Bowl, which probably has 15 of the top 20 or maybe even more events, and look at the Academy Awards or other one-time events like that, singular events, and sports was the place where you can gather audiences live and so I used to say that back in the old days. I can't remember whether I believed it or not, but I think I did. Sports is a place, no sense using your VCR. Isn't that a quaint word, a VCR? Uh, to tape it because it loses its importance. It's ephemeral. Mm-hmm. You want to be there, gathered in when it's live. Back in the day, we used to talk about product placement. That was going to be the saving grace when people stopped tuning out the sponsorships, there would be a can of Coke sitting on the table and then maybe you could sort of place it there using technology and a like. Well, we've been dealing with product placement for our history. If you want to see, go look at an NBA game. You start with the courtside signage, you, then you turn to the pole wraps, the vomitoriums, are, have you know, the steps leading up have sponsorship on the fascia of the steps. The clock... On the side of the basket, the 24 second clock has an advertisement. The top of the basket has the name of the team, dot com. I mean, we. You're the king of monetization. We were the king. There's a less flattering way to describe it, and we accept it no matter how it was described. Yes, we were out to make a buck for our players and our owners.
2: Yeah, you very commercial about it.
3: That's the beauty of you know, the revenue sharing.
2: So did it go too far? Because when you were negotiating the media contracts, you were negotiating with broadcasting and cable. Now it's swelling to some extent, and then you have to go to the other technology platforms to try to get the same kind of growth.
3: I would say that my successor, Adam Silver, we worked together for 21 years. He has many strengths, but one in particular is the understanding of the new media and social media and the desire and need to be fully distributed rather than to be walled. And he was a proponent of that and I was a willing acceptor of his advice. And so we were working together on that and in that mode. You know, it's kind of interesting. I saw Chad Hurley, the originator of YouTube at a conference, I followed him out of the room and the NBA was the first league to have a channel on YouTube. I also follow the gentleman who was the founder of Second Life and I think that there's an avatar of me someplace <laughs> on a site that turned out to be a German pornography site. I'm not sure. You know, oh, no. so you talk about failing, you know, you win some you lose some, but keep trying. We have billions of views on YouTube. The NBA has a couple of billion probably followers, likers, whatever on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram and on Snap.
2: Well, it feeds on itself because... It does feed on itself. You become global in your audience partially due to your prowess of social media and technology. You get players from around the world. You go to expand different markets like India and China.
3: That's what I call it, the self-effectuating brand machine. It just keeps going if you get it right. And we began getting it right. We worked very hard to distribute our games around the world, most famously mm-hmm. in around 1990 or so. Sandy Brown, who was at our head of internationals, said, I was in Japan, I decided to visit China for the weekend. And Sandy and I show up at CCTV, he had made the appointment, and Mr. Lee, the head of sports, and proudly announces, I'm sorry, but there's no NBA on my calendar. So I said, we'll wait. And so Sandy and I sat in the lobby for three hours. <laughs> and finally, Mr. Lee came down and we persuaded him that he should allow us to give him our games on television. And so he accepted our kind offer. We had an arrangement with CCTV where we were going to sell the sponsorship and give him half. And I think I sent him a check for some number of years. We never sold anything. But we were there, and gradually you could see the Chinese market develop to the point now where I guess the widest distribution of NBA content in China comes from Tencent. QQ, you know, with whatever it does. It's really quite remarkable. If you get into a country and you sort of hunker down, you grow with the market. And it was our judgment that the delta between the development in the U.S. market and that in the rest of the world would be closed slowly and differently by each market. But that's what we did. So now I think we're in more countries than there are U.N. members. I think the numbers like 217 countries in 43 languages. I used to say it was the NBA's television department. Any atoll that had a dish became a country. But it happens. As we speak, there's one or possibly two games taking place, NBA games in Africa. Basketball Without Borders. This is probably the 10th or 11th year in a row that we've gone to Africa. I did the first one in 1993. I had the honor in addition to the pleasure of meeting with Nelson Mandela when he was out of Robben Island, but before he was president. And so I got a strong sense from my own personal travels that there was something going on here that I had better strive to understand because sports really traveled well.
2: You know, the audience here for our KinCast podcasting, our mostly CEOs of various media, technology, telecoms, companies, and investors. And a lot of these companies have their own brands that have been evolving over the course of time, just like the MBA brands. But what advice would you have for a steward of traditional media brands that have to really catapult themselves into this new environment now? Oh, God.
3: They're probably more experienced than I am. If I would dare to, I would say that to the extent that I consider myself a marketer and a brand manager, and frankly, watching some of the political campaigns gives me confidence to say that I am, it pays to stand for something. Because if you don't stand for something, you're liable to stand for nothing, and that will be deleterious to your brand. And I don't think I'm telling any CEO anything new about that, but... uh, the sense of uh, standing for something. It's easy with respect to sports. It's harder with respect to soap or toothpaste. But there are different ways to inject standing for something into those processes. But it rallies your employees. It makes them feel better about themselves as well as the company for which they work. It's your obligation
2: to worry about your community and the broader community. That's very insightful and helpful. And it seems like embedded within that advice is also, based on your experience, the demonstration of trying new things, of keeping yourself at risk, of extending the brand into new areas and trying to expand the pie that way, even if it makes sense in the future but somehow creates some risk in the near term. Yes, but it depends about the size
3: of the risk. It's not a big risk. If you're sitting in the war room and you say, okay, let's try something in China... Now, at the time, China was this unknown. I know that in the 1936 Olympics, China entered a basketball team. You didn't know that, Mm -mm. and you didn't know that it was outdoors, and you couldn't possibly guess how they transported the team there, because I don't even know. But that's like a built-in kind of a advantage that we have, that basketball has been played in the Olympics since 1936. And what's the big deal if we try something in Portugal and it doesn't work, or in Italy it doesn't work? You know, if you look at the map, it's a big world out there. China actually is a little bit different, frankly because of our perseverance. It's our second largest market now. And I have owned our hat owners said, David, here's what we want to tell you. China has great potential and it's always going to have great potential. <laughs> I said, no, 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 you guys are wrong. Just leave me alone. And in fact, we actually sold 11% of the NBA's prospects in China. So I could do the very unusual thing of distributing $60 million to my 30 teams. Very rarely do you take in money for the purpose of distributing it to the ownership you usually take in money to grow the product
2: who was the investor where did the money come from
3: disney and the investment arms of bank of china china merchants bank and Li kai shing's foundation
2: all very blue chip
3: all very blue chip but i did it for the wrong reason it was to show my owners that there was some money here that was here now here's two million dollars a piece will you leave me alone please and they did. And now China, we have these, the NBA has these extraordinary digital consumer products. You look at China, Adidas and Nike each have somewhere between six and 10,000 shops and shops. I don't even know exactly what the current arrangements are. In Africa, ExxonMobil has this enormous presence and is happy to be doing good works through NBA Cares or Junior NBA or something like that. And I made the deal myself when I was in Mumbai four years ago with Mukesh Ambani's foundation about junior NBA and junior WNBA and how we would make kids in India feel good about themselves by playing basketball. And so...
2: So you de-risked the investment. You saw something, but you de-risked it. You de-risked it. The question is...
3: Is this a detour and a little crazy, or does this make good business sense? And it was probably the answer is yes, yes, and yes. It's a detour, it's a little crazy, and it makes good business sense. So
2: you find a compromise solution for everyone. Right. That's correct. Right. Okay, let's talk now about where we're headed and some of the new businesses emerging out of sports, out of the NBA, and also some of your investments that you're seeing. But let's start with eSports in general. That's obviously the new yeah. craze. What do you think about that category? Oh,
3: boy. You know... <laughs> I think it's going to have a very good and growing audience of a lot of types that are not traditional attendees or appreciators of traditional sports. You do an esports event in Madison Square Garden, you're going to get 20,000 people screaming to watch 10 kids with fast muscle twitch engage in a competition I may have been a little misunderstood in something I said recently. Initially, they asked me about eSports. I said, look, it quacks like a duck. It walks like a duck. It's a duck. <laughs> it has teams and fans and sponsors and arenas and television. So it's going to be there. Then I said, you know, I think I'm aging out of eSports. They said, oh, Stern's losing faith. I'm not losing faith in it. I don't appreciate it as much as I might if I were 60 years younger. I am today. But that doesn't mean it's not going to have a large following and ultimately be
2: successful. Is it like another league or is it more of just marketing the existing product? No, I think it's
3: another league. There are at least three leagues that I know of now. The Activision Blizzard League is Overwatch or something that contains the name Overwatch. The uh, Riot Games, Tencent is League of Legends. The NBA is going to have an NBA 2K League. And there are many others. So the sides are forming, people are buying teams, they're forming teams, they're forming franchises. There's likely going to be something there. I may have underestimated PricewaterhouseCoopers, to which I advise their media entertainment group. Their five-year global media review says that it may have quadrupled over the last number of years. It's going to triple over the next five years. So it's going to be with us, esports, and that's going to change the landscape a bit. Who knows who can be the great next esports player. Yeah, because you
2: could argue it takes your brand strategy and decentralizes it deep into the local level.
3: Yes, yes, it does. And the best thing about it, which I truly appreciate, is that esports started, in effect, in Asia and is moving here. And that's an interesting phenomenon. It's a little bit like soccer starting in Europe and moving here. So it's global by its very nature.
2: So I'm assuming you have no... Active investments in the esports area right now. I have
3: no active investment in the esports area,
2: but you do have an investment portfolio now, an investment thesis perhaps, and <laughs> you are invested in companies like FuboTV, which we're invested in together, actually. Right, right. Uh, Sportscaster Live, Shot Tracker, some others. Each of those follows my
3: curiosity in some cases to be invested to see where it's going. When I invested in FuboTV. I would say it was the first of the -the over-the-top streaming sports bundles. And I said, i got to watch this. And it was fun. Of course, in the interim, as it has grown and funded and funded again and grown again, we have DirecTV Now and Hulu and Sling and, I guess, Sony PlayStation. In the intervening time since Liontree and I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think your investment was probably a bit larger than mine, but I love to see that, and that's that. And then I invested in something called Shot Tracker, which is really a wearable technology, which is you put an RFID on your athletic shoe, and there's one in the basketball they play with, and they wire the gym and all of us with sensors, and all of a sudden you can track real-time statistics. <laughs> Real-time, it happens. You can see it on a screen. You can see everything. And it can tell you, as you're watching the game on your iPhone, whether the coach is using the right combinations or not. It's really going to be great fun. And a whole bunch of others. And Sportscaster is one where you're going to have a second-screen experience where I can... You know, I can listen, if you on Saturday night decide to call the Nick game, I can turn on a Nick game but listen to Aryeh Borkov call the game. And that sort of goes to the ability of over-the-top being able to change the viewer experience or the listening experience or something like that. And there are lots of others that I'm invested in, sort of sports technology. To see. There's one, artificial intelligence which is StatMuse or machine learning. Someone's going to explain to me the difference between those. You ask it a question and it can give you the answer in chart or graph form. Hmm. And most recently, I've become interested in a company called BitFry Studios, which is digital games and games to life, which Juniper says is going to be a $15 billion business by 2022. And most recently, I've been interested in something called Overtime, which is focusing on the high school market because that may be a place where everyone has sort of crashed out in trying to produce games and have a high school network. But if you have the video capacity of these wonderful cameras called iPhones and you collect it in some place, from a standing still start in six months, you can have 100 million views a month of people that know and are interested in the high school game. Hmm. So, so you're having fun with it. I'm having fun with it. It's taking too much time for this old retired guy, <laughs> supposedly, but it's a lot of fun.
2: Well, it sounds like embedded within each of your investments is a focus on technology and where things are going. Go to the major platforms, the technology platforms like Amazon or YouTube or Snap, Facebook. Are they going to be the future buyers of sports rights? And
3: yes while I was still commissioner, I made the rounds trying to hawk the notion that the companies, only one of which is in your list that you mentioned, that are sitting on the most enormous amount of cash, some of it overseas, or offshore, as we say, like Amazon, Apple. like Facebook, like Apple, like Microsoft, I'm leaving one out, like Google for YouTube, were ultimately going to be the buyers of sports rights. I think prematurely the incumbent rights holders were listening, but the aforementioned list of companies were not. So Disney and Time Warner extended the NBA rights with very long deals out nine years. And now if you read the newspapers each week, Twitter pays $10 million for the NFL and Amazon comes sweeping in and pays $50 million for a Thursday night NFL, not even exclusive. And then. Facebook decides it's going to have, I guess, one of them has WNBA, one has Major League Baseball, they have content produced just for them. They were just a little slow to realize what was going
2: on, but they'll be back,
3: and that's going to, in my view, keep the sports right marketplace bubbling.
2: Mm-hmm. So now if, just to end with a few fun questions. Everything's been fun, Yeah, me? everything's fun with you. The Warriors, their dominance, is this a good thing for the league or is this tough? You know, here's the deal. And I was reminiscing with
3: Bob Ryan of the Boston Globe, who's covered the Celtics since 1968. I said, Bob, what do you think, Bob? Do you think Bird, Parrish, McHale, Dennis Johnson, Danny Ainge, Scott Webman and Bill Walton were a super team oh yes they were David that was 84 85 86 do you think that Kareem, Magic, Worthy, Cooper, Nixon were a super yes that was a super team too so what are you all yelling about of course there were always super teams and there always will be super teams some will be gathered differently some will draft well and grow these extraordinary characters you know Steph Curry, I don't know, was he drafted seventh? He wasn't the first pick in the draft. No one thought he was the answer. And I actually happen to think that Steph Curry is changing the game because the complaints were everybody's trying to slam dunk. Well, now everybody's going to want to shoot threes, and shooting is going to be important. And that changes things. And then someday they'll decide they want to slam dunk again. So there's an ebb and flow. Someone said to me, is that good for the league? I said, was it show and lie or Mayotte Tongue when they asked him, what do you think about the French Revolution? He said, it's too early to tell. (laughs) See me in 15 years, and I'll tell you whether it was a good thing or a bad thing to have a super team like Golden State.
2: But you've got to believe the economic parity now in the league where everyone has a shot to construct a great team. We'll make these super teams maybe short-lived and there's a chance for someone else to emerge. Well,
3: no, it's interesting. It should, but it may not because of the importance of a player or two to a team where only five people take the court. And so it depends upon duration of career. It depends upon health. It depends upon a lot of things and luck. But it also... Interesting enough, what it does do is it gives teams a chance to compete. I used to say, you know, never about the NBA, but if you have a good economic system and you are well managed, then your fans have to hold management responsible if you can't over a period of years develop a competitive team that they think will go all the way or something. And in baseball, you go to training camp and there was a time... When you knew that Kansas City wasn't going anyplace or Pittsburgh might or might not be going anyplace, and you knew it in the NBA as well for particular teams. But over time, if you're sharing revenue and you have a salary cap, which caps what teams can do, then the rich cannot get richer. And that should, over time, create parity. And uh, that's what the current system is designed to
2: achieve. Okay, another question. Does LeBron James retire as a Cleveland Cavalier, or maybe someone like a Los Angeles Laker? I can't tell you. <laughs> I know the answer,
3: but I just can't tell. I, you know, it wouldn't be fair of me to uh, to say. Arie, keep can't going. Hold me for trying. One of <laughs> <laughs> the Knicks going to get better soon. You're confident. Soon. I'm confident. I think they need a little stability, and I think they have it, and I think they will develop a competitive team. It may not win a championship in the next two or three years, but it's going to be able
2: to compete for a playoff spot. Okay, great. What's a book that you've read recently that's very influential or in- inspirational for you or that you can share with others?
3: You know, the book that I keep going back to that I realize was fiction rather than actually accurate was Tom Peters' Thriving on Chaos. I became an acolyte of that. If you ask me if I had a management style, it was Chaos. What's a priority, David? I said, everything's a priority. You know, let's go. And gradually, as I matured and became an adult about management, I realized you can't prioritize everything. But I was in love with the concept of chaotic management. It's uh, It worked. It worked for me. I've read a couple of books on the coming conflict with China. I can't remember their exact names. And anything by Ludlam <laughs> or some <laughs> other little <laughs> Carré, I can always you know, look
2: at or read again or something like that. I'm not into profound
3: reading. Of
2: all the decisions you've made in your career thus far, which one can you point to that had the best and most positive impact? Magic Johnson. We embraced him.
3: We had a decision to make. We didn't think there was a decision to make, but this is someone who was HIV positive at a time when a young boy by the name of Ryan White was precluded from going to school in Indiana because he was the recipient of a bad transfusion because he was a hemophiliac. And he wasn't allowed to go to school because he was HIV positive. And here was magic, and we said, he's ours. Um, So when he announced that he was HIV positive, I was there with him. Some suggested that I maybe should do a little polling to see whether we were too far out, but I don't think we were. And it was from that moment on that Magic did Nickelodeon shows and other shows. And actually it turned out, and it's really quite the miracle, we knew for a fact that Magic was going to die young because that's what happened when you were HIV positive. But he didn't because he was an early recipient of the protease inhibitor cocktails of some kind where he looks great and he's going strong. And I still sort of... Get skin bumps when I'm in his presence, give him a hug and say, my God, Magic, you look great. It's so good to
2: see you. What inside of you led you to that decision? The notion
3: of the NBA family. He was one of us. We used the word that people thought was like, ah, it's kind of corny, but we were a family. You know, all families are dysfunctional. They're just dysfunctional in different ways, but we were the NBA family. And he was a member of the family. And just because a beloved relative was dying of cancer, you don't say, my God, you shouldn't have smoked. You embrace him and you nurse him and then you finally say goodbye on the right terms. And that's what drove me with
2: respect to magic. It's all about people at the end of the day.
3: It's all about people and it's all about groups. And it's some crazy notion. It's using family, not as family family, but the NBA family as a been a relatively compassionate one as we've grown from the 24th employee that I was to the probably 12 or 1300 that currently comprise the NBA.
2: David, in addition to your other responsibilities and interests these days, do you have any guiding light or affiliations in the venture space?
3: Yes, I'm learning the venture business from Alan Patrickoff and his colleagues at Graycroft Partners. They're great a-, a great group great group. I have a card that says intern and that's the way I feel and that's the way I'm treated and that's good because I'm learning the venture business from the best. And the beauty of it is I know so little about it that my education will never be complete and so I have to keep working at it.
2: Alan and I had lunch this week and I learned a lot from him and he's a great investor and a great leader of the company.
3: And we sort of work together. I just visited Liontree with five companies that, I guess, three of which Greatcroft has invested in, and that we're showing Tree for future investment opportunities. So we work well we, together.
2: We appreciate it. Collaboration is a good thing when we're trying to all figure it
3: out. <laughs> it's wonderful to know that you can never get it 100% perfect is like the best inspiration. Absolutely. I agree.
2: Well, David, there are many awards that should still be uh, afforded to you, given all the successes that you've had so far and that you will have in the future in various capacities. And congratulations on all your success so far. And thank you for your mentorship and your teachings. And I look forward to investing together and doing more things together. And thank you for being here. I couldn't be happier with to contemplate that eventuality. Thank you, Ari. <laughs> Thanks, David.
0: Now let's hear from Austin with the answer to our KINCAST quiz question.
1: What is the most watched single sporting event in television history globally? A, the 2014 FIFA World Cup final match between Germany and Argentina. B, Super Bowl 51 between the New England Patriots and Atlanta Falcons. C, the 2015 Cricket World Cup group match between India and Pakistan. Or D, the 2016 Summer Olympic opening ceremony in Rio. And the answer is... C. The 2015 World Cup of Cricket group match between India and Pakistan, which garnered over 1 billion viewers worldwide. For reference, the 2015 FIFA World Cup final between Germany and Argentina had 913 million viewers. Super Bowl 51 between New England Patriots and Atlanta Falcons had 170 million viewers. In the 2016 Summer Olympics opening ceremony in Rio had 342 million viewers. For reference, interestingly, for the 1 billion people who watched India's victory over Pakistan, 288 million of them came from India alone.
0: I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Feel free to leave a review at iTunes as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time.
1: Audiation.